0: Good morning, everyone. It's nice to see you. I'm very proud of you. You didn't stay up too late, or you did and you came anyways. Uh, I'm excited. Today we are beginning a new series, a series entitled uh, Experiencing God. Um, We're going to discuss the Holy Spirit and all things pertaining to the Holy Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit, what the Bible calls the fruit of the Spirit, what the Bible calls the gifts of the Spirit the inner working of the Spirit. But to begin, in today's context, discussing these matters, and by the way, if you don't know what those things are, the fruit of the Spirit, the gifts of the Spirit, in the course of the series, uh, you'll learn, so don't worry. Um, But in today's context, discussing these matters really requires... um, a little bit of recent history because uh, an event not that long ago has radically shaped the way that people um, discuss and um, think about these things. So I'm going to begin with a little bit of history, um, something that happened not that long ago and would certainly be considered one of the most significant events in the history of the Christian church. Um, and I will also tell you in advance, this is more than a little controversial within Christian circles. If I had a handful of Christians or even pastors, Christian leaders, and I, and I brought up this very topic, there would certainly be strong opinions and perhaps even um, perhaps even the temptation for disunity And so before I even begin all of it, something you're going to hear from me today multiple times, and something you're going to hear a lot of times in this series, as the scriptures that talk about the spiritual gifts and the the fruit of the Spirit are very, almost always linked with the conversation of Christian unity and oneness, what I'm going to say is that unity, oneness, oneness. Humility is more important than your views on this issue. You could be theologically correct and spiritually dead wrong if these matters and your opinion on these matters lead you to be an agent of disunity or discord. So with that being said, I just want to say that this is my perspective that I'll be sharing and you and Christ are free to disagree. Okay, many of, the, many of the conversations and the perspectives when it comes to things such as the spiritual gifts, well-meaning people can sometimes come to differing uh, positions. So that being said, let's talk a little bit about history. So in the year uh, 1906, so really not that long ago, 1906, 100 some years ago, a certain preacher named William Seymour a one-eyed African-American, the son of uh, emancipated slaves, Um, a man named William Seymour, he was invited by a certain woman to come and preach at her church in Los Angeles. So he came and he preached and uh, not everyone liked what he shared. Some people did, but some people really didn't. And then the next Sunday he came And he literally found padlocks on the church, locking him out. (laughs) Uh, What was so controversial? Well, what Mr. William Seymour preached, among other things, was that God was to be experienced through something called the baptism of the Holy Spirit. He taught that there is a blessing called the baptism of the Holy Spirit that Christians can experience. And what was actually rather interesting is, at this point, William Seymour confessed himself that he had never experienced this baptism of the Holy Spirit. He was coming to his conclusion simply from uh, reading the Bible and and instruction on the matter. But he had come to the firm uh, conclusion himself that the baptism of the Holy Spirit was a real experience and this is something Christians should long for. And this is what he taught. And like I say, Not everyone liked it. He went next week, and the church was padlocked. Uh, But some people found his teaching interesting, and they wanted to hear more. So he was invited to a certain person's home. And there, him and some of the other people who found this appealing began to meet and pray. And over the course of five weeks, they continued to meet in this manner, studying the scriptures and praying and on, um, on April 9th, after five weeks of praying and, and, and preaching, apparently the spirit fell and a certain man began speaking in tongues. If you don't know what that is, it'll come out later in the series, but he began to speak in a language he did not understand. So, and then three days later, Will, William Seymour himself, experienced the same, uh, what he would call the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and he began speaking in tongues. Well, word spread, and this little home gathering began to grow and grow until the foundations of this home literally started to crumble and collapse. No one was hurt, but they realized we needed to find another place to meet. And so then this small group found um, a rather... um, kind of a broken down building for rent in downtown Los Los Angeles. They rented it for $8 a month, and it was on uh, Azusa Street. And uh, from this comes what history knows as the Azusa Street Revival. Once more, if I have a diverse handful of Christian leaders in a room, and I bring up the Azusa Street Revival, there's gonna be a lot of strong opinions Okay, And once more, we don't all have to agree on what went down there and what the meaning of it is. But I will tell you for sure, no matter what you think about this event in church history, you would have to agree it is certainly one of the most significant in the history of the church. Because, like I said, this is 1906, not that long ago, a little over 100 years ago. Today, directly from this specific event there is now over 700 Christian denominations worldwide um, that trace their roots directly from this single event. There are somewhere in the ballpark of about 400 million Pentecostal Christians who trace their roots back to this very same event. And in addition to those 400 million uh, Pentecostal Christians, there's another around 300 million Christians who have been experienced, uh, who have been affected by what has been known as the charismatic renewal, meaning these sorts of ideas um, were adopted by people and groups within some of the older denominations, and so you have everyone from Episcopalians, Lutherans, even Catholics, um, that that um, embraced this teaching of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And so from that, a little 100 years ago, now you have 700 million Christians and churches in every nation under the sun that are affected by this, which you could very easily argue is the most successful, if you wanna use that word, spread of the gospel since the first Pentecost. Now, I'm gonna go ahead and show my cards here. As in, it's controversial, I'm gonna tell you where I land. Um, as the scriptures say, and as Jesus quoted, um, as Jesus said, "Does Satan cast out Satan?" Meaning, if you're going to ask a question, is this a work of God or is this a work of the devil? Even if you really disagree with Pentecostal theology, the vast majority of these churches preach the message of the cross. They preach the gospel. There's no way you're going to convince me that 400 million, if not 700 million, Christians sprung forth with churches under every nation under the sun, and this has not been a work of God. I mean... If that's not a work of God, then whatever, whoever did that, we're gonna to have to learn from. Because anyone who has ever strived in Christian ministry and seen the amount of labor it takes to bring forth one single convert has to look at that and say, what happened here? And really, in humility, we should be saying, what can we learn from this? Because obviously we can learn something from this. 700 million, the, the world completely changed. Um now so with that being said with me saying yes I believe this is from God I am not saying that I agree with or endorse everything that sprung from it and I'll even go so far as to say I don't even agree with everything William Seymour himself was teaching some of that I would actually disagree with but nevertheless I would confess that this has clearly been a work of God and there are some very important things that we can learn from. And there are some things that went down and things that were taught and embraced during this Azusa Street Revival that the church, us, would be very wise to consider. Um, so so what, what, uh, what can we learn from this? What happened? You know what? I'm gonna pray and then we're gonna... We're gonna dive into this, and and what we're gonna do is we're gonna look at scriptures today as we talk a little more about this uh, historical past. Father God, oh, let me only speak by your anointing power. Holy Spirit, you are with us. Holy Spirit, allow me to speak by you, pointing at the truth of the cross, the message of our salvation, and the good news of the gift of the Holy Spirit. Let me speak by your anointing and let that be evident. I ask this in your name, Jesus, amen. Okay, um, so what can we learn from this? Um, I recently actually was at a pastor's conference and there is a pastor by the name of John Piper, very well-known uh, pastor, theologian, not considered part of this movement, a uh, charismatic movement, he was asked, what do you attribute to the overwhelming success of the charismatic movement? And he said, the reason is charismatics, and though that's the term that really describes what sprung from this Azusa Street revival, if you don't know. John Piper said charismatics correctly tell people that God is to be experienced. And that's why the movement has grown so fast. Charismatics correctly tell people that God is to be experienced. While many other uh, Christian movements perhaps focus on different theologies and doctrines and rules, but they never... Speak about how God has given us his spirit to drink, to experience. On that note, actually, let me put a scripture on the screen. Um, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13. For we were all baptized by one spirit so as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free, and we were all given the one spirit to drink, to drink, to experience. The Holy Spirit is given to us to drink. That's something... To think about, and here's something else. Through the course of this series, and we'll be beginning this next week. Next week, we're going to start on the, um, uh, on the spiritual gifts, and there's a lot we're going to discuss during the series. But next week, we're going to get into that in the book of First Corinthians. If you know anything about the Corinthian church, and you know anything about the modern day charismatic movement and the criticisms of it, what is remarkable to me is that the very same criticisms of the modern charismatic movement are the exact things that the Apostle Paul is addressing to the Corinthian church, (laughs) okay? All all of the same things. Um, Things that the modern charismatic church are accused of is elevating um, the spiritual gift of tongues above what the Apostle Paul calls the higher gifts. Um, using the spiritual gifts as a source of pride and ultimately division rather than the spiritual gifts used to build up the church, Um, immorality in the church. I mean, some of the historians that will talk about the Azusa Street will talk about immorality that was associated with it. Um, Disunity, all the things that we would, again, people would criticize the modern-day charismatic movement, very much the Apostle Paul's point in writing the letter to the Corinthians. A disunity, chaos, people getting together, and, uh, and the Apostle Paul says, people are gonna walk in and they're gonna think you're all out of your minds, <laughs> okay? And I know, I, I know people, <laughs> I know people in this city who have gone and visited a charismatic church and felt super uncomfortable because it seems like everyone is doing things that are chaotic, and the Apostle Paul says, God's a God of order, not disorder, like you guys need to, you guys need to function with more order. But here's my point. The Apostle Paul started the letter to the first Corinthians saying, I thank God for the ways he has gifted you. Never does he say this is not real. In fact, he very much affirms the Holy Spirit's working among them. So all that to say is, yes, it would be good for us to point out and learn from the criticisms that the Apostle Paul gives, while at the same time acknowledging the Holy Spirit is given to the church and the spiritual gifts that, that that the Holy Spirit gives are given to the church. And in a weird way, in a weird way, the way that I see it is the book, the letter to the Corinthian church, validates the modern-day charismatic movement and everything that happened since Azuzu because it is remarkably similar. It seems to me that when the Holy Spirit is operating with power among a group of fallen people, they're going to be prone to the very mistakes that the Corinthians were prone to and the modern-day charismatic movement is prone to. Okay, I realize I'm using some terms that you might not be familiar with. And I'm just gonna say right now, if that's the case, just that's okay. In the course of our series, you'll probably get caught up. I'm gonna to try to speak fast today so we have time for questions because I suspect this message is gonna bring forth questions. Um, what I just read is we were all baptized by one spirit, um, um, Paul said. I need to talk a little bit about terms here, that term baptism of the spirit. Um, it, to me, it actually seems like it's, it's it's used in different ways in the scripture to refer to different things. But for the sake of today's conversation, I just wanna tell you, when I use the term baptism of the Holy Spirit, I'm using it the way that uh, Luke seems to use it in the book of Luke and in the book of Acts, meaning I see it very much as an experience that is separate from conversion, separate from salvation. I made that case earlier in a, in a, in a sermon um, before we got into Advent, If you wanna, if you feel like rewinding. Um, but um, but you'll hear me use the term baptismal Holy Spirit and, and the filling of the Holy Spirit interchangeably because I really see them as essentially the same thing. Someone, perhaps the first time they experience this experience of being filled with the Holy Spirit, sometimes that can be called baptismal Holy Spirit, but it's not meant to be a one-time thing. It's supposed to be something that we experience over and over again, so I'll use the term baptism and filling really interchangeably, just so you know, um, at least the way that that I'll use the term. Um, So first, okay, today we're going to walk through the first three chapters of Ephesians really quick. Um, So uh, Ephesians chapter one, beginning verse three, goes like this. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. Okay, hear this, hear this. This is something that is past tense, done. He's saying this is what God has done. He has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every every spiritual blessing in Christ. He's lavished on us this gift. And so from this, some people have concluded There's no need to seek any additional experience, any additional blessing. There's no need to seek this filling of the Holy Spirit, this baptism of the Holy Spirit. There's no need to seek this because as the scriptures say, he's already blessed us with every spiritual blessing we could ever have. That's what Paul seems to say, right? But then you keep reading and then you'll understand a little bit where I'm heading with this. So, but it's first true to say and it's true to understand if you are in Christ, meaning you believe in the cross, you believe Jesus died for your sins, in him you've been made one with him and every spiritual blessing you could ever have, you already have in him. You've already been made perfect in him spiritually. Okay? And again, that's 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 theology. That's 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 there's some mystery there, but that is a spiritual truth, okay? But then you keep reading. And then the apostle says, and you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. Okay, so more, more, more. When does the believer receive the Holy Spirit? We read it right here. When you believed. When you believed, you were marked with the seal, the promised Holy Spirit. So once more, um, the Holy Spirit, if you believe in Jesus, you have him, you have the Holy Spirit dwelling inside you. You've been sealed, you've been marked, all right? And the purpose of this seal, the purpose of this seal um, is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance into the redemption for those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. Uh, it's a deposit guarantee. Um, it's a guarantee. Um, So he just got done saying earlier, um, we have every blessing, and here it says we have this thing promising our inheritance. This very week, I was reading about um, a certain man who died in New York City, and I think his son was 28 years old. He left his son an inheritance of $7 million. Not bad, okay? Not bad at all. But there is one little catch, it's in a trust. And his son can't touch it until he turns 40. Maybe the guy was thinking, I want this guy to like, you know, live through the, the folly of youth or whatever and get a little maturity before he gets this money. It's not a, it's not a terrible idea, to be honest. Uh, so he's got $7 million in the bank, but he can't touch it until he turns 40. Okay, if I was this young fellow, every so often, and who knows, maybe even once a week, I'd probably wander into the bank and be like, can you just tell me? (laughs) Just tell me how much is there. I just need to know. Before I go back to work, you know, before I go back to to the daily struggle, just just let me know what's there. Okay, good, good. All right, I'm going to go back to work now. (laughs) Um, What's my point? This is a purpose of the Holy Spirit in our life. We have an inheritance, a inheritance of glory. The streets are gold forever and ever. We're going to walk there. We're going to live there with God, with redeemed bodies, new bodies that will never, never experience pain, will never die. That's the inheritance that's waiting for us. A purpose of the Holy Spirit in our life is to guarantee this, to testify this. Like I go to the bank and be like, tell me how much is there. Just tell me, let me know. Okay, good, good. The Holy Spirit is there to tell us, to let us know. And here's my point. Here's my point. The Holy Spirit is to be experienced as in you're supposed to know this. You have Christians, Christians who have every inheritance they could ever have waiting for them, every blessing in the heavenly realm. But it's very easy for us to walk around defeated, not feeling this, not experiencing it. Christians to not feel, um, this is the way that it's sometimes said, assurance of salvation. Like, do we know that we have salvation? There's a disconnect, right? There's a disconnect between what we say we believe, perhaps even what we sing about on Sunday, and what we feel, what we experience. And beloved, this is a purpose of the Holy Spirit. When I talk about the baptism of the Holy Spirit, the filling of the Holy Spirit, Eventually, we're going to talk about the external manifestations of that, spiritual gifts and such. Yes, of course. Good, good, good. Today, I want you to know what is the internal work of this filling of this baptism of the Holy Spirit. And the internal work is to know that you're His. Let's keep reading. I'll show you. I'll show you. You get to verse 15. He's explaining how this down payment, this guarantee works. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. This power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. Okay, so we just got done saying, you have this inheritance. You have this inheritance. The Holy Spirit is there guaranteeing that inheritance. You have him. You've been sealed by him. You already have this Holy Spirit. Okay? But then what does he say? Then what does he say? For this reason, I keep asking, verse 17, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus, the glorious Father, may give you the Spirit of wisdom. Spirit capitalized, is how this translation has it, the Holy Spirit, praying that the, the Father may give you the Spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know Him better. So after just saying you have the Spirit, he's then praying that God gives you the Spirit. Do you understand what I'm saying? Yes, yes, yes. If you're saved, you have the Holy Spirit, but there's still a need for this filling. There's a need for this spirit of revelation, as it says here. There's a need to experience. It's very important, I believe, that you embrace this theology because otherwise you're not going to ask and want and you're not gonna believe in the gift that God wants to give you. The promises of God are received through faith. It's very important for me that you would agree with me on this. If you don't, it's okay. You're still a Christian, many Christians. I have friends that don't, but I feel very strongly that the baptism, the filling of the Holy Spirit is a gift. It's a blessing for the church and it's different. It's distinct from conversion and salvation. You can be a Christian and not have this filling. And that's precisely why Paul is praying for these very people to have this spirit. And why? Why does he want them to have it? So you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance. You have this great inheritance, but I want you to know it. So for that reason, I'm praying that God gives you a spirit of revelation. Do you understand now? Do you understand what the filling of the Holy Spirit is internally? Knowing the hope, not on a head level, but knowing it on a heart level. Experiencing the truth of God. Beloved, there's been, there's been times in my life, I dare say many times, where I've experienced God working in my life. Like, I've experienced, like, wow, God did that. And whenever it happens, whenever it happens, I'm, of course, thankful for what just went down, okay? Perhaps the time God, uh, the first thing I think of is the time God used me very miraculously to, to lead someone to Christ. Um, and it was like, wow, God, I can't believe you did that. I'm very thankful we have this new believer. But what's even more, what's even more, the joy that I feel is this acknowledgement, this realization, like, wow, he is really with me. This stuff that I do, it's not just a bunch of set of beliefs. Like, this is real. He is really with me. Wow. Like, that is the joy. The joy is that head theology goes to the heart. You know it's real. You know it's real. That's why the Apostle Paul is praying. And, so what's going to happen is, this is Ephesians chapter 1, right? He's going to come back to this very same idea in chapter 3. But in the meantime, he's going to do this little journey. And time doesn't allow us to go through all the details of his journey. But what he's basically doing is, he's saying, Okay, I lay down for you that there is a prayer I have for you. And the prayer is the experience of the Holy Spirit. The, the filling, so that your heart may know the inheritance that you have. Your heart may know that you have a you have a trust fund, okay? And it's a big one, and it's waiting for you. All right, that's his hope. What do you have to do to get there, okay? What do you have to, is there something, is there a human element, element involved here when it comes to receiving this baptism, this filling? Is there a human element? And I dare say there is, and that's what, the Apostle Paul is talking about in chapter 2 of Ephesians. Uh, Let's let's read a little bit of it. Verse 2, chapter 2, verse 1 says this, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit that is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the desires of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were nature... We were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ when we were dead in our transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God not by works so that no one can boast, for we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Okay, there's so much I could say about this, but what this is, this is a theology of the cross. This is the message that we deserved God's wrath, every one of us, but it was 100% his gift. It was all a gift to save us. And even the good things that we do after that, that's all a gift also. It's all a gift. We come naked, we come empty, we come dirty, we come sinful, and we leave pure, clean. It's all a gift. And the reason why this is so important is if there's one thing that is going to prevent the Holy Spirit from working in your life, it's pride. And so he's saying, remember this, remember this, Remember this. Um, uh, there's some stuff i got to cut out just for the sake of time because I want to have time for Q&A because I know you, these things are probably bringing forth questions. So, uh, uh, But I will say this. Humility was one of the very clear marks of what happened in 1906. A um, couple quotes that I have here of people who... Who wandered on and visited this? Um, here's a, 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 what one historian actually said Humility came to re- be regarded as the de facto requirement for the reception of the Pentecostal baptism. Uh, one person quoting, talking about William Seymour, he says, Now just a word concerning Brother Seymour, who is the leader of the movement under God. He's the meekest man I have ever met. He walks and talks with God. His power is in his weakness. He seems to maintain a helpless dependence on God and is as simple-hearted as a little child. And at the same time is so filled with God that you feel the love and power every time you get near him. It's just... It's interesting to me, um, you know you read that that God has taken what is low and despised in the world um, uh to shame the proud like and as i as I keep reading, you're actually going to understand a little more about about what that was all about, what happened there. Um, okay, I'm tempted to. I'm actually going to keep going. Um, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11 goes like this. Therefore remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves a circumcision, remember that at that time you were separate from God. Which is done, which is done um, in the body by human hands. Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of promise without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. The human elements, what can you do to get there when it comes to the baptism of the Holy Spirit? And for one is remember that you're a sinner in need of grace and any good thing you have is due to grace and it's all grace. Um, Remember that. And then the other thing he's saying, remember. Remember um, that you were far off and God brought you near and God's removed the, the, the wall of hostility. In this context, he's talking about between Jew and Gentile, but what's expressed here is God's heart for one people. Um, Jesus died so that he could have one people. One people. Now, here's something else about what happened uh, on Azusa Street hundreds some years ago. It was hugely controversial then, but not for the reasons that is controversial now. And to be honest, um, some of the reports about what happened there that are not good, some of those reports are suspect because, as in some of those reports are untrustworthy, because they are very obviously um, blinded by what we would call hatred. Um, the, the, The headlines in the news at the time, and this is from, among other places, the LA Times, says, disgusting scenes at Azusa Street Church. Whites and blacks mix in a religious frenzy. Disgraceful intermingling of the races. I'm not even going to say some of what was reported in in these newspapers. But at this time, um, people of different uh, races worshipping together, it was scandalous. Um, I'm actually going to read uh, this this line from Wikipedia caught my eye. Blacks and whites worshipped together at the same altar against the normal segregation of the day. Seymour claimed that the Holy Spirit was bringing people together across all social lines and boundaries to the revival. He not only rejected the existed racial barriers in favor of unity in Christ, but he also rejected the then almost universal barriers to women in any form of church leadership. Latinos soon began attending as well after a Mexican-American worker received the Holy Spirit baptism on April 13, 1906. William Durman. One of the early leaders in the movement said, the first thing that impressed me was the love and unity that prevailed in the meeting and the heavenly sweetness that filled the very air that I breathed. Another uh, observer who came in said, from the very first time I entered, I was struck by the blessed spirit that prevailed in the meeting, such a feeling of unity and humility among the children of God. And before the meeting was over, I was fully satisfied and convinced that it was the mighty power of God that was working. How interesting is that? How interesting is that? The things that the Apostle Paul brings up in his conversation of receiving the spirit of wisdom and revelation, that's something that the folks in Azusa were walking in. Oneness, the dividing line of hostility, broken down, people worshiping together that otherwise would have been segregated. And this, this unity is what got the attention of people who walked in and said, God is really here among you. This reminds me of Psalm 133, a verse that I speak about often. When brothers dwell in unity, meaning when brothers and sisters, meaning Christians, when Christians dwell in unity, there God has commanded the blessing. Um, There is things that we can do. There's, There's things that we can do. We can be reminded of the message of the cross. We can be reminded that we're all sinners here. We can be reminded that God's heart is for unity, for oneness. To be honest, sometimes sometimes it can be safer in a church. It can be safer to not do these things, as in to not seek the Holy Spirit and the things that go with it. Take, learn from the Corinthians. That church was messy, right? That church was messy. They were operating in the gifts and it was messy. And the Apostle Paul had to, had to give some <laughs> instructions on how things would be less messy, Right? And so some people, they don't want that mess. And they're like, we're just, we're going to forget that stuff. And I say, no, 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 no. I want all the gifts and the power of God. And if it comes with it, a little messiness, then we have, and we will have the silver bullet that will guide us through that messiness. And what I mean is, it'll be the spirit of humility and unity. And as we walk through the messiness, we're going to have that. What happens? What happens? What happens when different people feel led by the Spirit, come to different conclusions? What happens when someone says, I feel like the Holy Spirit is telling me this, and someone else says, well, I feel like the Holy Spirit is leading me in this? How do you walk through that? Humility. Humility. And that's how we will as a church. That's how we're going to guide this process. Um, okay, all want right, right, gonna wrap it up. Uh, Cheryl, You're going to come up in a second, but I just want to read this last chapter, this last part of Ephesians when he comes back to this idea in Ephesians chapter 3. For this reason I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being. You see, he's praying for the first thing, same thing he prayed for in chapter 1. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you being rooted and established in love may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide, how long, and how deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. You see what he's praying for? To be filled beyond knowledge, beyond beyond head knowledge, heart knowledge, to know the love of God. That's what all this is about. That's what the baptism of the Holy Spirit, the filling of the Holy Spirit, that's what we're talking about. Being filled with the knowledge. Jesus loves me, this I know. That is what it's all about. That's what we're seeking. And and, beloved, I think this is gonna be a wonderful journey. This this is gonna be a wonderful series for us. Uh, God is gonna be doing this in us. And our job, our job is hold to that message of the cross. We're all sinners here. Hold to that value of unity, because it's more important than our own perspectives. It's more important to the heart of God. It's more important to the the hope of revival. We're gonna walk with humility. We're gonna walk in unity, and we're gonna walk as sinners um, coming to salvation. Um, Father God, do this work in us. Let us experience this filling, this baptism, and let us know the love that surpasses knowledge. We ask this in your name, Jesus, amen.
1: All right, so it's time for Q&A. And we were anticipating that we would have some questions today. And so if you have um, a question, just raise your hand and we have someone with a microphone that we will pass to you and you can ask your question or you can text your question to the number on the screen. And it's very hard for me to see, so wave hard if you have a
0: raised hand. If there's no questions, that's okay. I thought there would be,
1: but uh, yeah, we're also okay with that.
0: Oh, there is one over there. I think I see Adel, and there's uh, over here, too.
1: Okay. We're going to Adel first, and then we'll come to you, Nancy.
0: happy new year um my question is based on one of the last things you said there about how
1: there might be two people who love the lord and are spirit filled but get
0: different messages and you said the the way to get through this is to put on humility what does that look like and sound like practically and how can the same spirit say two different things? I'm so glad you asked that. Okay. Here's, I believe, the proper posture when it comes to um, the gift of prophecy, which we're going to talk about in, in I think, three weeks, I think. Somewhere soon, we're going to talk about this. Two, three, four weeks somewhere. Um, As in, God is speaking to me. Unless you have audibly heard the word of God, what you say is, this is what I think God is telling me. Okay? As in, this is something that the Holy Spirit and the word of God should not be used as. It should not be used as kind of a trump card. As in, God told me this, therefore that. Um, In fact... uh, What the scriptures say is, do not despise prophecy, but test everything. You're supposed to test prophecy. Does this line up with the word of God? Um, and, and, And sometimes testing prophecy, I think, goes beyond that. Sometimes it's like, does it line up with other things that God is doing? If someone calls me up and say, I just had a dream, I just had a word of God, like, you're supposed to go to China next week, I'd be like... I'm testing that and that's out of the blue. That's really, there's no, there's no other signs in my life saying that. Now, if I got that call and people had been telling me that in different ways and I've been like learning Mandarin out of curiosity or something, then I might be like, oh, you know what? I'm testing it and it seems to be affirmed. Um, something else, the, the uh, oh, you know what? I'm not going to get into all that because I'm tempted to give the whole a sermon on New Testament prophecy right now, but instead I'm gonna say this. We are fallen people, okay? We make, what is it? We prophesy in part. We see in part. We prophesy in part. We don't, we don't, ha- we're not. The New Testament gift of prophecy is not the same as the Old Testament prophet. The Old Testament prophet was infallible. You don't test him, okay? When Isaiah speaks, you don't test it, all right? You, you listen because that's the infallible word of God. New Testament, the gift of prophecy is not infallible. The scriptures are infallible. Okay? Our interpretation isn't always, all right? And so when it comes to, I could feel like God is telling me this, but I could get it wrong. And I feel like part of walking humility is acknowledging that. If I come to you and say, God told me this, therefore, if you don't do this, you're sinning, or if you don't agree with me, you're in the wrong, then I'm in the wrong. Unless I'm basing that on like infallible scripture, if I'm basing that on on a word or, or, or a sense from God, I have to bring with it a sense of humility. This is what I feel like God is doing, but I could be wrong. So I think that, that the reason why two different people might disagree is we get it wrong sometimes. It can be messy. So, yeah.
1: All right. We Nancy, was your hand up? Okay, so Nancy over here. While, while we walk to her, um, we have a couple quick questions. Is speaking in tongues something available to everyone?
0: Great question. And is it available to everyone? Oh, um, I'm going to be honest and say, I don't really know. Let me say this. What I do see in the scriptures, the Apostle Paul says, do all speak in tongues? Do all prophesy? Are all apostles? What he's implying is no, not everyone does. And this is to the very same church. He said, we're all baptized in one spirit. Meaning like we've we've all experienced this. This is the Corinthian church where the gifts were running wild. Okay? But he said, not everyone speaks in tongues. So I would say, in that sense, no, there, there are different manifestations of the same gift. But I would also say, I think that if you want it, if it's a gift you want, I would, very, I, I would be very hesitant to say it might not be available to you. I think a lot of times the gifts are received through a, a desire of Lord, I want this. Uh, the apostle Paul also says, "I, I, you should desire that you should prophesy, earnestly desire that." So this is a longer conversation. So on one hand, I would say it sure seems like there, the scriptures say there are different gifts. Um, each is given by the Spirit's wisdom as the Spirit decides. So I would say there's that. But if it's a if it's a gift you want, I would be also very hesitant to say well, don't bother seeking that because it might not be for you, I would actually say seek it, seek, seek. Um, So I realize if that's a bit of a non-answer, it's the best that I can do.
1: (laughs) All right, Nancy, let's hear your question. Happy New Year. Um, A quick question. As you sort of move into this uh, teaching and this uh, desire for revival, it seems to me that there was a charismatic revival on the West Island probably 1970, 1980. And it involved a lot of other churches. So I guess my question is, are we sensing or even looking at the churches around us and trying to understand or determine if there is something coming and where it's coming from and how we might work on that as a community?
0: That is a beautiful question. And something that... uh... That actually, I read about the Azusa Street Revival is that there was no official organization behind it. There was not like one church that could claim it as theirs. And when I read about, uh, I almost I cut it out for the sake of time, but I was going to talk about the the first Great Awakening and how all these churches, uh, it was happening in communities all over, and many churches were experiencing this. And so. There is something to be said, I think, for this not being something that is owned or, or under the roof of just one church or one organization. Um, but to answer your question, ha- what's happening already, um, uh, all I can say, I guess I'll, I'll give it some thought. I definitely uh, have some relationships with other pastors and, and uh, I know uh, Pastor Jeff also gets together with some of the pastors in the West Island and, and pray. But I'll, I'll keep that in mind. All I can say, I guess, is thank you for that word. Okay, I'm gonna ask
1: two questions at once. They're kind of related. Uh, The first one is, if we're not sure that we have been baptized by the Holy Holy Spirit, does this put to question my faith? And the second question is, I've understood that the baptism of the Holy Spirit is a one-time event, often associated with manifesting the gifts of tongues. But the filling of the Spirit seems to be continuous. Peter was filled with, with the Spirit several times in Acts, including when he spoke to Ananias and Sapphira. So do you understand baptism of the Spirit as happening multiple times?
0: So this is why I say it comes down to, I think, terminology. Acts chapter 2, that's the baptism of the church, right? That's when the church um, is, is, is first filled with the Spirit. They speak in tongues. The place shakes. But then you turn the page in Acts chapter 4, the very same people experience the same thing. The place shakes, the, the sound of a mighty wind. It happens right after praying. And sure, if you want, you could say Acts chapter 2 is the baptism of the Holy Spirit and Acts chapter 4 was the filling of the Holy Spirit. But for me, it's the same thing. It's just different terminology. If you want to use baptism for the first time it happens and filling for the second time it happens and the third time, that's fine. But experientially, to me, it seems like the very same thing. And that's why I will use the terms interchangeably. Um, and... Uh, and again, I, I, I don't think it's worth debating over terms. What terms should you use then and there? Um, uh, if you feel like you've never been baptized by the Holy Spirit, should that lead you to question your faith? Absolutely not. That's a big point that um, you see in, in Ephesians. Paul is saying you have this. Whether you feel it or not, you have it if you believe in the Savior, but I'm praying for you to experience it. I'm praying for you to, to feel it, to know it. So my advice would be, if you don't know if you've been baptized with the Holy Spirit, but you believe in Jesus, seek that. Pray for that. Um, and I think through the course of the series, we'll talk about ways that you can seek that, and I think we're going to actually um, provide some, some avenues for you to come. But even today... Today, I mean, we have our prayer team here in the front of the church after, after the service. You can come, and many times the Holy Spirit is given the baptism of the Holy Spirit. The filling comes through the laying on of hands. Not always, but that's one of, the, one of the ways that the Spirit seems to sometimes work. I've seen it with my own eyes. I've seen it. I've seen, I, I saw with the laying on of hands a woman very clearly was filled with the Holy Spirit like with power. Um, so you can come and, and request that, and I know our prayer team would be very happy to pray, pray this for you. In fact, they would love it. It would be very much on their heart. Um,
2: As I listen to all this, and, and um, I find it, I find I'm getting more confused, and maybe it's just me, but um, I realize that in the, in the Old Testament, the, the Spirit comes and goes. In the New Testament, I interpreted it more as coming and staying, being sealed. Um, but then the baptism of the Holy Spirit seems to be something different altogether. Um, then we have the, the gifts of the Spirit, which, I, again, I, I recognize as somewhat from the Holy Spirit but there seems to be multiple implications on receiving the Holy Spirit, not, not just one, one implementation of the Holy Spirit when you come to faith. It, it seems like in a, this is something that can happen multiple times. That's my question.
0: Yeah. Um, I... and and let me know if this is clear, because I really want it to be. The way that I understand it is when you first hear the message of salvation and believe, so this is Ephesians chapter one, we read it, you're sealed, you're marked as in the Holy Spirit dwells in you. You have the Holy Spirit, you have a new heart. By the power of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit is dwelling in you. But there are times in your life, and the first time, if you want to call it the baptism of the Holy Spirit, or you want to call it the filling of the Holy Spirit, there are times where that indwelling Spirit the word baptism means submerged. It's almost like you're overflowed. Like it's one thing, like like I, like I have a drop of water in my heart, and it's another thing for me to be drenched. So, when the Holy Spirit comes with power, when someone is filled with the Holy Spirit, it's like that Spirit that is in them, indwelling, is now empowering, and and uh, yeah, empowering. If that makes sense. So, and then and then no one. No one, like, there's been movements throughout history that have seemed to imply that you can get baptized with the Holy Spirit once and then the rest of your Christian life you're just coasting with this very same power. I don't believe that. I don't don't see that. Um, Instead, I think it's something we continually, it's like, what did Jesus say? Anyone who believes in me will have a well bubbling up inside them. Um, for for us to continually go to and drink. That's the idea. He's given us the same spirit to drink. So it's kind of like, uh, does that make sense? Like like we have the Holy Spirit at conversion, but we should still long for the Holy Spirit to fill us um, experientially to know the great truth that we have because of conversion, because of salvation. Yeah, I'm glad you asked for the clarification. I really want that point to be clear. Absolutely.
1: This is going to be our last question, and it is, can you hear God's voice?
0: Well, absolutely, in the sense of, I mean, this is the point we're going to make, is earnestly desire the higher gifts, especially that you may prophesy. Like, he wouldn't say that if it wasn't possible to hear God's voice and speak words of prophecy. Through the course of this, I'll, I'm sure I'll be telling stories about times where I've thought I heard God's voice. And many people have testimonies such as this. But I do say, once more, this is different than the Old Testament prophet who infallibly heard God's voice. We prophesy in part, as the scriptures say. We see in part, and for this reason, we need to walk with great humility as we perceive. Anytime I think that I'm, I, in the nine months, in the nine months before when I first, you know, started talking with with all of you and your leaders, it was nine months before we came here, and it was almost nine months before you all voted to actually invite me to come here. There was a long time where I really thought God was calling me to Montreal. I really thought he was working to call me here to, to, to all of you, but it was it was an infallible feeling that I couldn't I I was constantly praying for God to confirm that. Lord, confirm it. Confirm it. Because I'm not always right. You know, sometimes I get things wrong. There's been certainly times in my life where I thought God was leading me to do a certain thing, and it didn't work out that way. Okay? Um, And and so that's why I I say, yes, God absolutely speaks to people. It's absolutely possible to hear his voice, but it's something we need to approach with humility. Um, and, And I think in the course of the series, we'll talk about ways we can grow in confidence that what we're hearing is actually the voice of God and not you know what we ate for breakfast or whatever. <laughs>
1: Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for sending the spirit to us. And even though we find it somewhat confusing, Lord, I pray that through this, pa- this series of sermons, we would uh, come to understand his role in our lives more clearly. And, Father, that you would be with um, all of the preachers who are preaching through this sermon series, that they would, first of all, be experiencing the Holy Spirit in new ways in their lives as they prepare. But then, Lord, that as a congregation, we would also experience the Spirit in new ways. Father, I pray that you would revive within us a desire for things of you. I pray that you would revive within us um, the the desire to explore this even though it might be intimidating it might be scary even God through all of this I pray that you would help us to trust in your unchanging goodness in our lives I pray this in Jesus name Amen.